is equal if you want to look at the the tabernacle to the first coming of Christ and the temple to the second. The first coming, Jesus came in humility, clothed in humanity. All the implements, all the things within the temple spoke of his deity and his humanity together within the tabernacle. In the temple, we have a permanent structure. It's no longer a tent that moves around. It's a permanent structure. This permanent structure is there to stay. The tabernacle pictures that first coming of Christ, coming as a sin sacrifice for us. The tabern or the temple points to his coming, his second coming, which will be established, solid, permanent. So as we look at that, we can we can see those things. We're going to see the the temple way bigger, twice the size of the tabernacle. We're going to see the temple way more gold involved, way more ornate, very very uh, uh, decorated. The floors gold, the walls are gold, the ceilings gold, everything's gold. That could be gold that's not something else, especially on the inside. Instead of being lit by one hammered work of a, a menorah, they're going to be lit by ten in the temple. Instead of one table of showbread, there's going to be ten tables with the showbread on the or the bread of his presence on that the the golden altar still going to be placed in its position of prominence just before the veil which leads to the holy of holies when you went to the holy of holies <coughs> excuse me went to the holy of holies in the tabernacle it's very plain as you walked in and from the outside from the inside it was all gold but as you walked through all you had the central figure was the Ark of the Covenant. When we come to the temple, when you walk through the Holy of Holies, you have two giant cherubim. One giant cherubim on one side of the room, a giant cherub on the other side. Their wings touching over the center and their wings touching the wall. Beneath them is the Ark of the Covenant, which also had two cherub or cherubim on it with their wings touching over the center on the mercy seat which would be the place where the priest would sprinkle the blood, the blood of the atonement. Keep in mind for both, the tabernacle and the temple, the whole reason they existed was to forgive the sins of the people. That's where they could go to meet God and be forgiven. Where do we go to meet God and experience forgiveness? We come to Jesus Christ. He is that example for us. In the New Testament, the scripture tells us that you and I are the temple of God. And that corporately, as a body, we also form the temple of God. Each of us a stone that God is chiseling, that he is developing to fit in a particular place within that spiritual house. In the midst of which God works, God moves, God lives. So we see that, that we can be tied into that example as well. As we take a look at what's going on in 1 Kings. So if you're there, 1 Kings chapter 7. <clears throat> and we'll take a look uh, tonight as he finishes up the building program that he began that we saw Solomon. Remember Solomon's chief purpose in being king was to make sure that the, the desire of David would be fulfilled. That God would have a house. So we'll see that tonight. It says in verse 13, now King Solomon sent... And brought Hiram from Tyre. Now, this causes some confusion. Tyre had a king called Hiram. This is not that guy. Tyre is a, is a land of the Gentiles. This guy is a Jew. His Jewish heritage comes through his mother. And we see that in the next verse. In verse 14 it says he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So his mother was Jewish. And his father was a Gentile. And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. Now listen to this phrase. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So it's going to talk about all the bronze work that's done next. And one of the things that's interesting of this, of this Hiram that the scripture talks of is just like it talked of of Barzillai earlier with the, with the tabernacle 
And that is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and gifted in woodwork, in metallurgy, in carving. And what that tells us is the gifts of the Spirit are not just something that focuses on necessarily spiritual things. For example, there are people who are gifted by the Spirit and excel in music. They excel in the ability to write songs. That's every bit as much a gift of the Spirit as any of the ones we would read about in, in Romans chapter 12 or in 1 Corinthians. The Scripture lays out for us, and it shows us in the Old Testament, this particular guy, anointed by the Spirit and gifted in bronze work. God specifically had this guy to be the man who was going to build the bronze work or the bronze things that were a part of the temple. Bronze is a metal that speaks of judgment. It's a metal that can withstand heat. It's what the altar is made of. It's what the laver, the laver, the sea is made of, the place where the cleansing occurs. It's what the, the implements that would be used in the sacrifice are made of. Bronze, speaking of judgment, what's being judged? Sin is being judged. It's being purged. It's being looked over by God as the people in faithfulness bring their sacrifices before him. And this man, Hiram, is gifted in that, in developing things of bronze. And the scripture is going to lay them out for us. <clears throat> he casts two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubit size, 27 feet. And a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. So these are humongous pillars. Humongous pillars. 27 feet tall, 34 foot when, by the time you put the caps on. And these are made of bronze. It's a, it's a bronze work that he puts together. In fact, if you ever get a chance to travel to the Vatican, the bronze of these pillars is there at the Vatican. The pillars aren't there. They melted them down and made something else out of them. But they carry the placard that says, This is the bronze from Solomon's temple. So it's interesting. Anyways, if you ever find yourself in the Vatican and you want to check them out, <clears throat> they're there. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits. So overall, we're talking about 34 foot. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for capitals, uh, which were on top of the pillars. Seven chains for one and seven chains for the other. So he made the pillars, two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. Thus he did for the other capital. Now on top, they are covered with a ring of pomegranates. Pomegranates, we're going to see over and over again in the Old Testament, is an example for you and I of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love's a fruit. And so that's something that was to be evident. And what I find unique about this is they put it on top of the capital, which is 34 feet from the ground. So who sees it? Well, God does when he's looking down on the sins of the people on the sacrifices that they're bringing, he's going to see two things in particular from the top of the capital. There's lilies, flower, and pomegranate, the fruit. The flower and the fruit. To me, the lily's always going to speak of, of Christ and the sacrifice that he makes that he has yet to make but that he that that whole courtyard and all the things that they're doing in there what does it speak of who is the lamb who is what's the, the altar is an example of the cross and everything we look at is pictures of sacrifice that christ would make so he sees the fruit of the spirit that love he sees the lily which is the sacrifice that christ is going to make and and they're carved on the top 34 foot up of these bronze pillars. <clears throat> the scripture goes on to tell us, uh, the capitals which were on, the, on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies and four cubits. And the capitals on the two pillar had a pomegranates above by the convex service which was next to the network and 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. So all the way around the capital, whoosh, 
we have pomegranates, 200 pomegranates, 200 pomegranates around the top, 200 pomegranates as, as we come down. And it says, Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple, and he called the pillar on the right, its name was Yachin, and he set up the pillar on the left, and his name is Boaz. Yachin and Boaz. Yahin means uh, Yahweh is stable. Speaks of uh, the stability that we find in him. Or Yahweh will establish. <coughs> so, on the one hand you have stability. And on the other hand you have Boaz. In him is strength. Yahin. Yahin speaks of he or Yahweh will establish. And the other in him is strength. These two pillars that sat right there. They didn't hold anything up. They're just these giant pillars connected together by these chains with pomegranates speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. A lily speaking of the sacrifice that Christ is going to make pictured in the courtyard where they are set. These two pillars uh, uh, lying in that place. This beautiful picture. It says the tops of the pillars are in the shapes of the lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. So they put these, and they're set. The pillars in our temple. Remember I said that the scripture lays out for us that each of us is a stone within that building, the temple, and corporately we become the temple. But there are also pillars. Are there pillars within that temple? Are there pillars of strength? Are there pillars of stability? When the Lord looks within our temple, when the Lord looks within me, individually, the Bible says, my body is the temple of God. When the Lord looks at me, are there areas in my life that speak of a pillar of strength and a pillar of stability? Boaz was the grandfather of David. He's the man who married Ruth, from whom comes Jesse, who becomes uh, the father of, of David, and so on down the line. Well, when we see... Boaz, Boaz is a righteous man and a great picture in the book of Ruth of Jesus Christ. So is there, is there a pillar in my life that rightly reflects the strength of God? Is there a pillar in my life that rightly reflects the stability? That God establishes me. That God equips me. That God strengthens me. When the Lord looks, are those things apart? Are they a part of my temple? Or are they within me? Then the scripture goes on to talk to us about the sea. <coughs> the sea was always a place in Hebrew literature from which evil came, or not necessarily evil, but was filled with trepidation, fear. Judgment came from the sea. When we come to the book of Revelation, we, we're going to see the beast rose up, what, out of the sea. It speaks of coming from that fearful place. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people were not seafarers. They stayed on the ground. So the sea was something they were afraid of. But they make this giant bronze, what's called the sea. The sea. And this sea, here at the temple, speaks of that which, by which the people are cleansed. The blood of the sacrifices purges their sin. And then the priests would go to the, the laver, the sea, and they would wash themselves. Wash, Ephesians chapter 5 says that we're washed in the water of the word. It becomes a picture of the word of God. And this sea that we're going to see right now is humongous. Basically 12,000 gallons were held in this laver. In this bronze laver that's going to be held up on the backs of 12 bulls. Let's take a look. It says, uh, And he made this sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other, it uh, was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. So what do we got? Seven and a half feet tall, 15 feet across, 45 foot circumference. A bull. Basically what he's talking about is a big bull. And this big bull is, was what's going to hold the water. Below its brim were ornament, ornamental buds encircling all around. Ten <coughs> per cubit. All the way around the sea, the ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. And it stood on twelve oxen, 
Three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east. And the sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. So all their heads are pointed out. And it was a hand breadth thick. So the bronze is a hand's breadth thick of bronze in a bowl that is seven and a half feet tall and 15 feet across, filled with water. And that becomes a place where the priests are going to be able to be cleansed. Then, in verse 27, he's talking about smaller carts that are going to be spread around in the courtyard. And it says, And he made ten carts of bronze, four cubits was the length of each, four cubits its width, three cubits its height. So these are basically six square foot uh, uh, carts, solid bronze, upon which is going to be placed a big bowl. The bowl that goes on these carts is going to hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 gallons of water. These are portable. Though obviously the one with 12,000 gallons, nobody's moving that. So it stays where it is. And then, but there's other areas within the courtyard. When you come to the Passover and 185,000 lambs are being slain, you're obviously not going to get all of those around one giant bull for the priest to kill and be able to clean himself. So these smaller bulls are going to be spread out, five on one side, five on the other, as we see. It says that uh, this was the design of the carts. They had panels. The panels were between the frames, and the panels were of lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of a plated work. So you have cherubim, angels, you have lions, and you have oxen. Oxen, all the way through the scripture, picture service, the servant, the Lion pictures the king. It's a symbol of a king all the way through uh, the scriptures. And the angels speak of his deity. So we, we see the, the angelic host. We see his kingliness. And we see something different. Not too many servant kings out there, are there? When's the last servant president you saw? Who would maybe, I don't know, come down to a soup kitchen and bowl out bowls of soup for somebody who couldn't vote for him? They don't have that attitude. But this is the attitude of Christ. Everything, everywhere you look within the temple, pictures him. It talks of him. It speaks of him. Well, scripture goes on to say every court, cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports under the lever were supports and cast of bronze uh, beside each wreath. And as I was reading this, it's kind of interesting because the whole thing is going to be a mold poured bronze solid. So you have a six foot by six foot cart on top of which is a giant bowl with 250 gallons of water and the whole thing is made out of bronze. The wheels are basically a chariot wheel in four places, and I don't see it anywhere where he talks about brakes. So I'm assuming it had to be pretty flat up there. Because you get all that stuff moving. If you had a chance to be there, if you walked on the Temple Mount, you know it's flat, perfectly flat. But as they, they get that thing moving, that's a lot of weight to get going in one direction and be able to stop. It's pretty interesting. It says now, <coughs> verse 31. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits outside the diameter. Also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels and axles of the wheels that were joined to the cart, and the height of a wheel was one and a half cubits. So again, about the size of a chariot wheel on the four sides. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. And on top of the cart, at the height of a half cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. 
On the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Palm trees, again, in, uh, in Hebrew literature, speak of fruitfulness. <coughs> the palm trees usually had hanging in their branches dates. And so they'd have these palm trees that speak of the fruitfulness uh, of the land. Once again, with the lion and with the, uh, with the angels all around. Now, as we look at this, as we go through this, and we won't be in this part of, the, of, uh, of chapter 7 too much longer, but you notice every little detail is listed out for us. Because every little detail mattered to God and to the people. And if you're honest and you think about your life and you think about the things that are going on in your life, there are things in your life that you think, well, it just doesn't matter. That's not, God doesn't care about that. Are you kidding me? Are you paying attention to what we're reading? He's talking about the, the supports in the corners of the cart. I don't even care about the supports in the corners of the cart. But it matters to the Lord. And it mattered to his people then as they were putting it together and as they were building it. And that what that translates to is in your life and my life. There are areas of my life, especially in, in the older days or when I was younger, when I used to think, well, this doesn't, God doesn't care about this. It's not a matter of spiritual importance. It's a little league baseball game. So God doesn't care about that, does he? Well, sure he does. Is it, is it part of your life? Absolutely he cares about that. Remember, we've been talking about on Sunday, there's no division between secular and sacred. If you belong to the Lord, you are all his. Or you aren't his at all. And if you are all his, then he cares about every part. Every hobby. Everything that makes you tick as a human being. God cares about it. The Bible tells us, that he knows the hair on your head. The Bible says that when one sparrow falls to the ground, God knows it. And then the scripture says, you are of way more value than that sparrow. If he knows when one bird falls to the ground, then he knows every single aspect of your life. Everything that's going on. Those things that we think aren't important or that we think we ought not pray about or shouldn't bother God with. He wants us to bother him. He wants us to bring those things to him because the details he cares about. That's why we read this. We read this because God said, look at, I'm in the details. I'm in the crazy measurements of the wheels. This is the same scripture that Jesus said, you read these daily thinking that in them you find life. But it is these scriptures that speak of me. That's why we read them. Because Jesus is on every page. If we want to have eyes to see, he'll show us those things. He'll help us to see them. Well, he goes on in verse 37. He says, And he made the ten carts. All of them were of the same mold. One measure, one shape. So ten carts, all the same. Verse 38, we have the ten lavers, or big bowls. They're going to go on top of them. In, uh, in verse 38, he begins, He made the ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths. Again, it's roughly 250 gallons. Uh, and each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver. He put five carts on the right side of the house, five carts on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So in essence, when we came to the tabernacle, what it used to be, Excuse me, you would come in through the door. By the way, you guys remember, right? There's a scripture about someone's door, isn't there? Didn't Jesus say, I am the door? What door is he talking about? The entrance into a relationship with God, the same way that we come in. What tribe was encamped outside that door? Judah. Where did Messiah come from? The tribe of Judah. So you walk through the tribe of Judah to enter into the door. The door is made of the same material as the veil. The veil. Scripture tells us in Hebrews that his body is the veil. That Christ is the door. They all point to him. And you come into the temple, it was the same way. 
First you came to the, the big altar, the bronze altar where the sacrifice was made. After the altar you came to the bronze sea, the, the laver, the place where the priests would be cleansed, where they would clean up their hands and clean themselves as they went into the holy place, which was the place of worship. They passed through the holy place, they came to the holy of holies. One day, one time a year, one high priest, and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb onto the mercy seat, and God would wash away the sins of the people for another year. But every day there were sacrifices. Every day there were sacrifices where people would would be looking to God for favor, or worshiping the Lord in their sacrifices, or worshiping Him through the things that they did. And every day the priests would do the same thing. They would not go all the way into the Holy of Holies, but they would offer up the sacrifice that would in, in turn become... A pit barbecue where you shared your meal with God. What was burned on the barbecue was the Lord's part. What was cooked and given to you was your part. And you and God were sharing in a time of communion there at the bronze altar. Well, the bronze altar is the cross. That's where we, we meet the Lord. We come there through Jesus Christ. We enter into the place of worship through a door that was made by Jesus Christ. It speaks of his flesh. We can come boldly before the Holy of Holies and stand before Almighty God as we pass through the veil, which is the flesh of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was torn. Why was it torn? Because the body of Christ was torn. And by His broken body, the separation that keeps us out of the presence of God was torn down. So when we have a relationship with Christ, we can come straight into the Holy of Holies and go boldly before the throne of grace and make our requests known to God. It opens up that relationship spoken of through the tabernacle and the temple. Now the Bible tells in verse 40, Hiram made uh, lavers and shovels and bowls and he finished all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped uh, capitals that were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates, and the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top. The ten carts, the ten lavers in the sea, one sea, twelve oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovel, the bowls. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. Each one of those articles speaks of something being judged, something being cleansed. Something passing through the fire, whether the, the sacrifice on the altar, whether the, the pillars, it all speaks of that which has passed through the fire, come through judgment. Well, he goes on and says, In the plain of Jordan is where the king had the clay molds between Succoth and Zaratan. Listen to this. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Remember I told you we're going to come to a section of scripture in about two, three chapters where they're going to stop counting the gold. They're going to stop counting the silver because they have so much. This was such a big job and they used so much bronze they didn't even take the time to measure it out and weigh it. They just did it. They just did it. Jesus said no man when he puts his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There are times when our service in the kingdom of God is going to cost us so much, maybe we don't want to consider how much it costs. But if we lay hands to the plow, we're not supposed to look back. We're supposed to look to Christ and continue moving forward. So they didn't care how much it took. They just did it. They didn't care how much they had to work. They just did it. Remember, the work party is over 300,000 people. That's the work crew. They're making the temple and the palace and the buildings around the outside. That's a big work crew. Right? Anybody ever worked in a crew of 300,000 before? I, I have never done that. Yeah, crew of two, crew of ten, maybe crew of a hundred, but 300,000? That's, that's a big deal. This is a big, humongous effort that was being put out. Well... <clears throat> Scripture goes on to tell us that in verse 47, and Solomon, or I'm sorry, verse 48, then Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord. 
the altar of gold, that is the uh, table of incense. That's where the priest would go and offer up the prayers of the people. He would burn frankincense there on the altar. Does that remind you of something? Frankincense? Remember when Jesus was born, they gave him three gifts. You know what the three gifts were? Gold, the gift for a king. What else? Myrrh, which was a gift for the dead, and frankincense, which is a gift for the priest. Who, what the Bible tells in the book of Hebrews, what is it that Jesus is doing for us? He's seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies become his footstool. But in the meantime, what's he doing? The book of Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for you. What was done at the golden altar? They burned incense. They burned frankincense. And as the smoke went up, they offered their prayers to God. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ is right now doing for you and I in heaven. He prays for us. He's interceding on your behalf, just like he did for Peter. Remember when he came to Peter and he said, Peter, Peter, the devil has asked that he could sift you like wheat. What did Jesus say next? But I have prayed for you. He didn't say, I'm not going to let him do it. In case you're not aware of the story of Peter, God let Peter get sifted. Because Peter became a better Peter as a result. Didn't he? After the denial, wasn't he more humble? Before that, he was so proud of himself, he couldn't do nothing with him. But after the denial, now Peter could be molded. Now God could restore. Now God could establish. And Peter would trust in his strength instead of his own. He would trust in the strength of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. In the same way, God's doing that with us. In the same way, he's praying for us. That doesn't mean he'll deliver us from every hardship, but he will deliver us through every hardship. The Bible tells in Psalm 23, Yea, though I stop and hang out in the valley of the shadow of death. Is that what it says? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What's next? I will fear no evil. And then the pronouns change. For you are with me. It gets personal. Prior to that, he didn't use the personal pronoun. But there he uses the personal pronoun. Now he's talking to the Lord. Before that, he was talking to us. But after the valley of shadow of death, he's talking to the Lord. So that's what happens when we go through those hardships. The point is, the golden altar speaks of the incense or the prayers that Jesus Christ is offering for you and I right now. At the table of incense. The golden altar. So that's what he says. Solomon, he made uh, the altar of gold. And the table of gold which was for the showbread. Now the table of gold was for the bread of his presence. Remember I told you, every single aspect as we look is speaking of Christ. John chapter 6, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, your, your fathers ate bread from heaven. God, you know that God never called manna, manna? He never called it manna. God always called it bread from heaven. Manna is what the people called it because they despised it. Manna is a name that means, what's this? Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread from heaven. The table of showbread or the bread of his presence speaks of God's provision for his people. And what was God's provision for his people? His son so Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you're going to have any part of me, you must eat me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the people freaked out. Oh, he wants us to cannibalize him. The scripture says he was speaking spiritually. What's that mean? That Jesus Christ has to become a part of you. Do you understand that? The bread of his presence. When we eat bread, what happens? Do you see the bread anymore? Nope. What's it become? You. Me. It becomes part of us. It becomes part of us. In the same way, when we come to Jesus Christ, He becomes part of us. We become part of Him. We're joined together. It's not just an intellectual ascent. God exists. James says that the demons believe in God. Are the demons saved? Does anybody know? No. By the way, demons? No. That there is a God and they're not saved. So it's not intellectual assent. It's not just believing that there's a God out there somewhere. It's having the faith to ingest him to make him a 
part of me. The way we phrase that today is, have you asked the Lord into your heart to be your Lord and Savior? Have you asked him to become a part of your life? Have you made him a, a part of you? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man opens the door, I will what? Come into him and sup with him. That means we are going to commune together. In the Hebrew mindset, you became one when that happened. I will sup with you and you will sup with me. We become part of one another. The table is showbread. The provision of God, Jesus Christ, his flesh, his body given for us. That was on the right side. You walked in the door, table of the bread of his presence. Straight ahead of you, the golden altar where the prayers were offered. To the left, the golden menorah. Jesus said, I am what? The light of the world. If you come to me, you won't dwell in darkness, but in the light of life. The giant menorah was the only light within the temple. By the way, they didn't have a light switch. So those lampstands, the ten lampstands that we'll read about in a minute, they burned all the time, day and night, in the temple. Now you tell me what it looked like. Pure gold walls, floor, ceiling. Golden table with bread on it. Golden altar with incense. Ten golden lampstands. Seven lights each, which, by the way, consisted of one vine and six branches. Jesus said, I am the vine and what? You are the branches. The number of man is six. What's the number of completion? Seven. How's man made complete? When he has a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Now he's made complete. The God-shaped whole is filled within each of us and we become whole, complete. So... Ten of those. What did that room look like? Ten candle stands. Now the candle stands are pretty big. And the light is not like a candle stick. It's, it's like an oil lantern. If you guys have ever, like a kerosene lamp. Only they didn't burn kerosene. Olive oil. But <clears throat> they burned those. I mean it, was, it must have been unimaginably beautiful. How that light would have lit the entire area. Just like when I asked Jesus Christ into my life and his light shone in the darkness for the first time. It was bright. And as he continues to work and move in my life, it's a beautiful thing to allow the warmth and the light of Jesus Christ to penetrate those areas of our life and and make us clean. These are the articles that he speaks of here that he made. The lampstands of pure gold Five on the right, five on the left, in the front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. The basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers, pure gold. The hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room and for the doors in the main hall. (coughs) There were doors in the temple that went to the Holy of Holies that were always open. I know they were always open because... The barrier in the Holy of Holies was the veil. So what you have, in essence, if you, can, if you can picture it, are these boards that are covered in pure gold that hang from a chain that could slide all the way open. And that door was always open with the covering to enter into the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, being made of the veil, which Scripture has already told us is the flesh of Jesus Christ. This just speaks to the fact that God's eternal plan was always to open the way of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's, it's all there. If we want to see, or we could just read the numbers and say, what in the world has Jackie got us looking at this for? This is a crazy. Because it all speaks of Him. When Paul was sitting down and preaching for 12 hours and some dude fell asleep and fell out the window and died in the street, what do you think they were preaching out of? Well, the New Testament wasn't wrote yet. It wasn't a study on Revelation. They're going through these scriptures. And what I love about that story is Paul doesn't even miss a beat. He walks down, he lays hands on a man, he prays for him, he comes back to life, and he starts preaching again. He didn't stop. And that was after 12 hours of preaching. 
None of you have, have had to endure that. The longest you have to go with me is a little over an hour and a half, at the most. Maybe two hours, come on. But not 12. <coughs> so as we look, let's have eyes to see what God would show us here. It says, uh, so all the work of King Solomon, in verse 51, had, had blah, 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 blah. so all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the furnishings, and he put them in the treasury. You know, when David gathered all that stuff, I bet he thought they were going to be used in the building. I mean, don't you think when David gathered the gold and the, and the cedar and the wood and all that? But the Lord led Solomon to put that in the treasury. And there's something that I see in that, and that is this. When I, am, uh, when I give something to God, whose is it? So who decides what happens to it? The Lord does. Not me. I gave it to him. I was one time walking with my wife. We were coming into a restaurant and there's a fellow outside, homeless guy. And the spirit of God just stirred in me. And I walked over to him and I handed him 20 bucks. And, you know, he was all blessed. And I said, hey, it's not for me. God told me to give you this. I don't know the rest of the story. I don't know what happened. You can do whatever you want to with the story. That's what Kathy did. She said... Oh, my, he's just going to go buy dope or get drunk. I can't believe you did that. And she's just riding me into the restaurant, busting my chops. Sit down at the table. She's busting my chops. So finally I said, baby, God told me to give him 20 bucks, and I gave that 20 bucks to God. Whatever he does with it is on him. I gave that 20 bucks to the Lord. It's not mine anymore. It's God's. So let God do what he's going to do with it. And we see the same thing in our lives today when we have opportunity to give. Maybe we are moved by compassion. We watch something on TV and we feel the Spirit of God saying, I need to give to this, this thing, this organization, feeding children or whatever it might be, an orphanage. But once you give, you gave that to God. It's God's. So don't call him and say, what would you use my money for? That's not your money anymore. It's God's money. You gave it to God. David brought his offerings and he gave them to the Lord. And Solomon brought them. Some of the offerings the Bible tells in, in Chronicles that, that David had was iron. Did you read anywhere where iron was used in the temple? No. When's the last time you stored iron in a treasury? Like if you find iron, do you run to the bank and say, Can you put this in my safe deposit box? <laughs> you can go to Pacific Steel. They give you something for it at least, huh? So the idea is the same thing. Well, here, but they, they stored it. Why? Because what David gave the Lord, God valued. Do you understand? God valued it. It went in the treasury. You and I might look at it and say, that's of no value at all. I'm sure that's what the disciples said to the little boy who held up his sack lunch when Jesus said, you got anything to feed the people? And they said, what, what's that for so many? But did it matter to God? Yeah, because little is much in the hands of God, right? It all matters to him. Everything we ever gave, God knows. God knows. And so the same way here, they, they stored all those things of David. Now we come to chapter 8, and we're not going to go all the way through chapter 8, but chapter 8 begins the dedication of the temple. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Seven years to build the temple. The temple's a central structure. Remember, he also built a bunch of porches, uh, three stories of storage areas around the temple was not connected. Okay, they, nothing went through the walls. They're separate buildings. If one fell down, the other didn't. Solomon, in building this temple, it took him seven years to build the main structure of the temple. It took him 13 years to build his palace in the rest of the outlying buildings around the temple. So we have a total of how long? 20 years. He started in the fourth year of his reign, and it took him 20 years to finish the project. Now the project is done. <coughs> in 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to kind of take our time as we work our way through uh, his prayer, but we're going to see the dedication of the temple. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant 
of which the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. So, remember, up until this time, there was the tabernacle, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem. The tabernacle was in Shechem. They weren't together. Two places, two priests. It was kind of confusing. Now there's going to be one temple. All the stuff's going to be in one place. What's the point of that? The point is that that temple becomes central to all worship in all of Israel. Just like Jesus Christ needs to be central in all worship of the people of God. Every church, anywhere, needs to be built on the centrality of Christ. He's the main thing. There's a lot of other things out there, but he's the main. He's the focus. He's central. And here Solomon calls all the people, all the bigwigs, all the leaders. He doesn't say, oh, you guys just hang back. This is just a religious thing. He says, hey, we're bringing the ark in. Everybody get here. And the head of everything was there. The head of the tribes, the head of the different organizations, whatever they had, they were there for this coming. All the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethnim, which is in the seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is extremely important to, to the story. <coughs> the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's called Sukkoth, or the Feast of Booths. This is when the people would go live in tents. Remember, they'd move out of their house, and they'd live in a tent outside to celebrate the wilderness wanderings, when they used to wander in the wilderness, remembering how God had brought them to the promised land. But there's other things that we see pictured in the Feast of Tabernacles. For one thing, the dedication of the temple, what's going to happen? God's presence is going to dwell in the temple. The cloud, the Shekinah, the Kabod, the weight and glory of God is going to move in to the temple. The cloud of God is going to be so thick that the priests can't move. They can't worship. They can't do anything. They just got to get out. God's going to dwell in a tent. Does that remind you of anything else? When God, great is the, the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. What did Paul say when he was about to die? The time is coming for me to cast off this tent. What did Jesus do in the incarnation when he came from heaven to walk on earth as a man? He put on a tent. He dwelt in a tent. He left the habitation of heaven. And he walked on earth in the habitation of humans. He set aside his glory and he came in humility. The Feast of Tabernacles talks about all that. Remember when we look at the feast? You're amazing. Is there honey in it? Oh, you're too good to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. You should have. You didn't see me order or nothing, did you? Oh, that feels so good. Y'all feel bad for my scratchy little throat. Oh, that's way better than that monster was. So the Feast of Tabernacles, remember it was called the appointed times in the book of Leviticus, which means they always point to something prophetic. The Feast of Tabernacles points to the, the coming of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles points to the indwelling of God within the temple. What, what, why did Paul say that you are the temple of God? Why? Because God dwells where? In you, in your life. He moves in. When we ask Him, He comes. That is all symbolic of the Feast of Tabernacles. God dwelling in tents. So, this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. How, wouldn't you guys like it, you know, when those of us who have to work to have a seven-day holiday? Because that's how it was for the Jews. It wasn't one day for Christmas. It's Hanukkah. How many days for Hanukkah? Eight days. Woo! Not just one day, eight. How many days for the Feast of Sukkot? Same thing, seven. How many for the, for the, the Feast of Booths? Seven. They, the holidays were really holidays, man. They were holy convocation to seek the Lord. So this is what's going on. The Feast of Tabernacles is occurring. 
It says, uh, And so the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the, the tabernacle of meeting, with all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Listen, what's so, so important about this is it's all becoming one now. Where it had been divided into two parts, the tabernacle was one place, the Ark of the Covenant was in another. They're all here now. They're all coming into the temple. The tabernacle's coming in, the Ark of the Covenant's coming in, all the implements, all the tools that were used are all going to be a part of the temple worship. So it's all coming under one, as it was intended to be, central to their lives. And the priests, it says... Or I'm sorry, and verse 5, Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who were assembled with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. So just so you know, the highest reckoning at that time was around 10,000. So if they say it can't be counted, that means we're going in excess of that. Just... What do we think market value is of 10,000 oxen? And maybe today's market is higher, but it has not been any different in all of history. They're, that's where the value is. They gave. They didn't even pay attention to what they were given. Their worship was so extravagant. The extravagance of their worship was that they, it didn't matter. They just wanted to come before the Lord. It was all His. So they just lay it all out. Man, they're offering sheep. They're offering oxen. They're overwhelmed by the majesty of being in the presence of Almighty God and the fact that his, they're going to see His cloud enter into the, the temple. It's an amazing time. And so their worship is so tangible. It could be felt. It could be seen. It could be registered. Is that the way our worship is? Because that's the way worship's intended to be. If we're honest, we have varying degrees, right? Some days worship is like off the charts, off the hook, we're doing great. We're really tuned in to what the Spirit of God is doing. Other days we're thinking more about what our neighbor said to us the other day and we just can't get in it. But this, at this point, man, they're not even they're not even gonna count what they're given. They're just giving there's a word for that. It's called prodigal. That's to give recklessly. To give recklessly. There's a story in the Bible of a prodigal son. I recently read an author who said that that's not in the Bible. In the Bible, it's called the, the parable of the lost sons. It goes along with the lost coins and the lost sheep, the lost sons. And he says it's better titled the prodigal God. Why? Because what, what is it that God hasn't given? What is it that he hasn't spent? What is it that he hasn't signed? I mean, he gave us the glory of heaven, his son, everything he had to give, he gave. So the same thing we see here in their worship. Their worship was like that. It was prodigal. It was just spendthrift. They're just given. They're just bringing these things before the Lord. And the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And these poles, the new poles, are so long, it, it tells us, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place. So they stuck through the veil. This is a long poles, man. Long poles that were on, on the ark. You could see it from the holy place in the front of the inner sanctuary. But they couldn't be seen from outside. And they're there to this day. Now listen to verse 9. Nothing was in the ark except two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. Well, Hebrews tells us that the rod that budded, Remember when God chose Aaron, said Aaron is my guy, there was a rod that budded and they put that in the ark and, and the scripture tells us that they gathered together a censer full of manna and they put a censer of manna in the ark. That's what was originally in it. But now we come to the temple and it says there's only one thing in there. The Ten Commandments. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that the the things that symbolize some of the greatest miracles that God did, they're gone. But the one emblem of his word endures forever. It's still there. There are lots of prophets in the Bible, you know. It's only one prophet that God said was the greatest prophet of all time. It wasn't Elisha. It wasn't Elijah who prayed and it didn't rain. Elisha did twice as many uh, miracles as Elijah did. No. It wasn't David. The Bible calls David a prophet, but it wasn't David. David's called the man after God's own heart, but not the greatest prophet ever. Jeremiah, no. Malachi, no. We come to the Gospels, and we are introduced to the greatest prophet ever. Jesus said, of men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not do one miracle. What did he do? He spoke the word of God. He said, here he comes. Let me introduce you to Jesus. He pointed the way to Christ. When we see, when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, and we see in the, in the Ark of the Covenant just the, the Ten Commandments, we see God's emphasis on his word. The Lord tells us that he exalts his word above all things. All things. Remember our Greek study, right? All means all, and that's all that all means. Amazing how many of the kids got that down already. All means all, and that's all all means. It means everything. He exalts his word, the word of God. Think about that for a moment. Pause. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Revelation chapter 19 says, God the word is Jesus Christ. He's God the Word. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, it's built around seven I am statements. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses tells God, God's sending Moses to the children of Israel that are in Egypt. And Moses says, well, God, when I get there, they're going to ask me who sent, the, who sent me. And if I just show up and say, God sent me, you know, if you put me in a rubber room, it's not going to go so good. So, Lord, I need to tell them who sent me. And God said, you tell them I am. You say to the people, the I am has sent you. And most of us would say, I am what? Well, the word of God declares who God is. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He declares to us who God is. He declares him. So he is God, the word. In the middle of the Ark of the Covenant, the only thing placed in it at the time of the temple was the word of God, written by the finger of God on two stone tablets and placed into the ark. And if they ever find the ark today, it will have in it two stone tablets written by the finger of God. They'll be there because God's word will endure most of the time forever forever that's what they'll find they find the ark that's what they'll see now as we just come to the end of this section we'll close out tonight <coughs> it says in verse 10 and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the lord the cloud remember in the exodus there were two things that led the children of israel across the wilderness you remember what they were the pillar of fire and the cloud. How do you, you ever seen how people sit in the sun? 
I mean, as long as it's hot, they will make a perfect outline outline of the shade. So if there's a shade and you could look back, you'd see they're, they're perfectly designed into the same shape as the umbrella under which they are sitting in the shade. So when God wanted to move the children of Israel in the wilderness, what did he do with the cloud? He just moved it. Boop. Well, you're not going to stand in the sun and bake for very long before you're going to do what? Get under the cloud. Get under his covering. Being in his presence. At night when it was dark and scary, what was there? A pillar of fire to provide the light. So on this day as they bring the Ark of the Covenant and they set it down between those two cherubim where way back the scriptures, the Lord said, I'll meet you between the cherubim. I'll meet you between the cherubim. They set down that ark. Remember the box? What's the box have in it? Ten Commandments. What's the Ten Commandments speak of? All the failures of men. There ever been a man who kept the Ten Commandments? I don't care what they say. <laughs> as soon as they say, yeah, then they failed because they just lied. So they broke them. So it speaks of the failure of men. That's the ark. There's two pieces of furnishings with the ark. There's the box in which is the Ten Commandments. What's on top? It's called the hilasterion in the Greek. Mercy seat. By the way, the Bible translates the word hilasterion to the word propitiation. You ever heard of that? Substitute. The Bible says Jesus Christ is our hilasterion, our mercy seat, our propitiation, our substitute sacrifice. He's the one upon whom is placed all our guilt. So what does he do? He covers... The failures of man. So when God looks from heaven, what does he see? The blood on the mercy seat. The picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Cleansing the people of their guilt. And so as soon as they set that down, God came in. The cloud. The word is kabod. It's, it's weight. It's a thick cloud. It's a cloud. It's not like a wispy little cloud. You can, like fog. It's a thick cloud. The people had to get out. They were like, oh, whoa, tripping this big old thick cloud. They can't hardly see through. In a moment, we're going to hear them talk about the dark cloud. That doesn't mean it's black. It means it can't be seen through. It's thick. So it says that the cloud came in. So the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That word is kabod. The kabod. The weight. The weight of God. In other places, the word for glory is a word Shekinah or Shekinah. The Shekinah and the Kabod, two words used in the Hebrew to describe the glory of God, this that could be felt, that could be seen. So the priests are worshiping, and the cloud of God comes in exactly like he did in the Old Testament in Exodus when they set up the tabernacle the first time. And God came in. God came in. Do you remember when Eli and his sons lost the ark? There was a woman who was giving birth to a child at that time. Do you remember what she named her child? Ichabod. You've heard that phrase before, right? You know, the, it's come to that time of year when they talk about the headless horseman. Ichabod crane. Ichabod means the glory has departed. The glory has departed. Later on in the prophets, we'll see the prophets say that the glory of God no longer dwells in the temple. You remember when Jesus left the temple the last time headed to the cross? You remember what he said? He said, my house should be a house of prayer. But they were rejecting him. So what did he say to them? See then, your house is left to you desolate. And when Jesus walked away, the glory walked away with him. There was no glory in the temple at that point anymore. But now, when we get together next week, we'll talk about the prayer of Solomon, the prayer of dedication, which is an incredible prayer. Some of that prayer you know. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's the prayer of dedication that Solomon prays. When the temple's put up, the people weren't going through any hardship. But seeing ahead and realizing there were going to be difficult times, he wanted to prepare the hearts of the people. We'll look at that next time. For now... The glory of God has entered into the house of God. And it's the height of Israel's spiritual stand with God.
They're at their, their peak right now. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the time we can spend opening your word and God, hopefully seeing your face on the pages, God, as you continue to move and work. Lord, uh, we do pray, God, even as we look at the examples of worship, we look at the the weight that you place upon your word, when we look at the, the fact that there's not anything here in the pages of scripture that's there by happenstance, but that it that it all fulfills a purpose. <coughs> Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in our walk to put that value upon your word. Help us in our walk to put that value on your worship. And help us, Lord, recognize the desire that you have of each of us to be men and women of prayer dedicated to the concept of calling on the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, we just ask that you would help us grow day by day in our understanding of who you are as we study about Christ and the things which point to him. And Lord, we ask your blessing in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close.